This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. On about March 4th, 1888, a 35-year-old English artist boarded a train from Paris. Her name was Lilius Trotter. While she was in Paris, she could have visited with some of the most famous Impressionist painters of the time because she was in their league, actually, but she didn't meet with them. When she got to the city of Arles, is that correct, Megan Robbins? Arles? Arles. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, Just fact-checking there. So uh, she got to the southern city of Arles. She could have met with Van Gogh who was living and working there, actually working on one of his greatest pieces as the time that she was passing through, but she didn't meet with Van Gogh. Like Van Gogh, at one time in her life, she aspired, or at least flirted with, becoming a famous artist. She was actually boarding a ship in the port of Marseille. Is that right? Oh, just forget it. Okay. So, Marseille. Marseille, okay, so she will not do any more fact-checking through this sermon, okay, so she boarded the, the city of Mer- in the city of Marseille, she boarded a ship with two other single women that was headed to the port of Algiers in northern Africa, in the country of Algeria. She would spend the next 40 years of her life in Algeria, working in the slums, working among some of the poorest of the poor working with women and children, and then eventually men sharing the gospel. At one time, a famous art critic, the most famous art critic of the 19th century, actually, told Lilius that if you stick with me, if you come under my mentoring, you will become the greatest living painter in Europe. But instead, she chose to live in the slums of Algier and give her life to serving the poor in and through the name of Jesus. Now, as I was thinking about her story over the last couple months, which has really moved me and captivated me, I thought to myself, what explains that? What explains somebody who had fame in her hand and could have grasped it, but gave it up? By the way, she continued painting for the rest of her life, but she never became really famous for it. What would explain that? And on this Trinity Sunday, I would say there's only one explanation. It is the triune God. It's the Trinity, the nature of the Trinity. And you might think to yourself, how does that explain that? Or how does that explain anything for that matter? I mean, the Trinity is complicated. The Trinity is like a math formula. It's like cold. It's impersonal. The Trinity is nonsense. Three and one, one, three. How how does that make any sense? And it is Like the great 18th century philosopher, German philosopher Immanuel Immanuel Kant said, it has absolutely no practical relevance at all. And I would say, au contraire, Dr. Kant. (laughs) Have you ever been in love, Dr. Kant? Do you know how falling in love changes everything? When you're in love, You're thinking about somebody all the time. It changes your interests. All of a sudden, you're interested in things you were never interested in. It changes what you spend your money on, what you spend your time on. And it changes what drives you. What is your mission? What is your purpose? 
to get out of bed every morning. So, Dr. Kant, it changes everything. And it changed Lilius Trotter's life. And it can change our life as well, propelling us out of our smallness, our pettiness, our selfishness, our self-justification, and into this vast and beautiful life of mission, like Lilius Trotter. I want to tell three stories today. I want to tell a little slice, little slice, of the story of the Trinity based on that little six verses that we read in the Gospel of John just a few minutes ago that Deacon Val read. I want to tell the story of Lilius Trotter. This will be, in almost 30 years of preaching, the longest sermon illustration I've ever used in my life, Lilius Trotter. But it's important because, as Bishop Stewart says, the Christian life is often imitative. It's also participatory in the life of the triune God, as we're going to see, but it's also imitative. We imitate people who are following Jesus. Lilius Trotter is one of those people. And then at the end, I want to talk about our life, your life, what this means for your life. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles. This is going to be a, a thick section here, so, but it's only six verses. So let me just point out some things in, in, this, in this prayer that Jesus is praying. So it actually begins in John chapter 17, verse 1. It says, and it's found on page 903 in the Bibles in front of you. It begins with this. And when Jesus, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said... So he's been speaking to the disciples for the last three chapters, and he's said a lot, but now he's done talking to them, and he's actually having a conversation with God the Father. God the Father and God the Son are having a conversation. So Jesus is doing, what he's doing is he's opening a door kind of into the living room of the living God, and he's inviting the disciples in and us in to listen in on this conversation within the triune God. It's kind of cool. So if you ever wonder, I wonder what God is thinking when there's nobody around. What was God thinking before there was a world, before there was galaxies? What was he talking about? What was he doing? Well, he was doing something very important, as a matter of fact. Look at verse 24 in this prayer that we just read. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, that's all of us, whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Christians say God is love, but how could God have anybody love if there wasn't even a creation to love? Well, Christians said from all eternity that within God's very life, love was flowing. God the Father was eternally loving his beloved Son, pouring out love, pouring out glory, pouring out honor in this Trinitarian life. Earlier, Jesus talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, like chapter 15, verse 26, which says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So here's this Trinitary life, three persons existing as one eternally in a loving relationship. Now, what does that three in one look like? Well, I noticed something for the first time. I've read John 17 a, a few times, and I studied it a few times, but never noticed this before. The word giving, give, giving, gave, occurs 17 times in this passage. So within God's very life, there is this flow of giving, 
Oh, I give you. No, I receive it. Thank you. No, I give to you. No, I give to you. No, thank you. I give to you. There's this constant flow of giving, giving, giving. The God of Scripture is not needy. He's not lonely. He doesn't have needs that you have to fill and take care of. It's I give to you. That is the foundation of worship. Christopher Hitchens, the late uh, brilliant atheist who had some very harsh things to say about Christianity, the Bible, etc., on a number of occasions, he liked to compare the God of the Bible with being under the dictatorship of North Korea. Now, if you know anything about North Korea, it is a horrible place to be under a dictator. So, and we need to pray for the people of North Korea. And, and Kitchen said that this God is greedy for praise from dawn to dusk, from birth to death. It's like being watched, controlled, supervised by a dictator, like the dictator of North Korea. And I would say again to this man who's way smarter than I'll ever be, I think you're dead wrong. That's just wrong. The God of the Bible's not like that at all. That's not the God revealed to us in and through Jesus and the Scripture. What if God is actually blazing in holiness, as we read in that first Scripture? Holy, holy, holy. That God has crystal clarity about opposition to all that is bent and broken and distorting and sinful and destructive about his creation. He literally hates it. But it's not a hatred of, it's a hatred driven by love. So on the flip side of God's wrath in the Bible is actually love because God cares so much about his creation, he can't stand it when it's ruined, when it's broken, when it's bent, when it's destroyed. What if God is a father all the way down, giving, generous? That is what Christians mean when we say that God is love, that this love begins eternally in the persons within the Trinity. I was going through my sermon with our friend John Clark, who's a deacon here and also teaches theology at Moody, and, and John said, I, I, so I went through kind of the sermon and what I was going to say, and John said, man, I think you're missing something, missing something really important here. It's even better than what you're going to say. He said, don't forget, Matt, it is love that embraces us and brings us in. It's always that kind of love. It's always an outward-focused, outgoing, including kind of love. Look at verse 21, where Jesus says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. It's not just, Father, I'm in you, you're in me, eternal existing as three yet one, but I want to bring them into us. We, God brings us into his life. The Trinitarian love overflows, reaches out, grabs us by the hand, and Deacon John said this, gives us a hug. I like that. I didn't expect that from Deacon John, but I, I really like that. And then John said, it gets even better than that, Matt. 
Because it's not just about us, it's about the world. Look at verse 23, where Jesus says, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and I love them even as you loved me. And then look at the end of verse 25. I know you, and, these, and may these know that you have sent me. To the world, Jesus wants the world to know that he's been sent by the Father to love us, to save us, to rescue us. And in verse 24, he tells us something else about this. Now notice, it's a particular, it's not just any kind of love. It's not just love any way we want to define it. It's a particular shape to this love. It's a Jesus-shaped love that God sends to the world. It's very specific, very particular. It's embodied in the life, the teachings, the death, the resurrection, the sending of the Spirit, our ongoing union with Jesus, God the Son. And he says in verse 24, he says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Where is Jesus? Where, how do we know where he is? Where does he go? Well, you read the Gospels. Where did Jesus go? Where did he spend most of his time? With sinners, with the powerless. He went to places of dislocation, places of pain, places of violence, places of brokenness. He spent time with the rich and powerful. He wasn't, he wasn't choosy about that. But he didn't spend most of his time in posh and comfortable places. That's the whole point of God becoming man in Jesus. God becoming a human being. And so we, in our mission, we go where he is. We go to places of pain, dislocation, places of discomfort, places where people have profound and raw spiritual, physical needs. So mission does not start with God saying, you need to go. It's going to be really hard, really scary. You're going to suffer. You might die, but I'm not doing it. So all you got to go. Mission starts more like with a romance. It's like what we read at weddings in the Song of Songs, where one lover says to another lover, come away with me. Come away with me. Be with me. That's where mission starts. God invites us into his very life, pours his love into us, and then through us pours his love into the world. Now what does that look like when a human being gets captivated by that? Well, it could look a billion different ways depending on you and your personality and your calling and your place in life. But Lilius Trotter is one example of what that looks like. And I've been reading her life lately. I've just been so profoundly moved, and she sparked my imagination for what that could look like in my life. So let me tell you a little bit about her. She was born in, on July 14, 1853, into a family of incredible privilege. Her father was a stockbroker. She never had to open her curtains because the servants did that for her. She never had to go get a cup of tea because the servants did that for her. One biographer said you could not imagine a more ideal childhood than Lilius Trotter had. Incredible privilege. She was also just all by herself an incredibly gifted artist. One time when she was 23 years old, her, mother was staying at a, her and her mother were staying at a hotel in Venice, and they heard that the famous art critic John Ruskin was there. Really famous guy. Everybody who wanted to be anybody in art went through Ruskin. And her mother sent Ruskin some sketchbooks of Lilia's and said, here, would you take a look at these? 
Ruskin was amazed. He said, I've never seen anything like this. Well, basically, he said, I've never seen anything like this from a woman, is what he said. But, sorry about that, that's what he said. And he said, she seemed to learn everything the instant she was shown. And Ruskin promised her fame and fortune as an artist. You come under me, you let me mentor you, you will be a famous artist. Lilius was torn because about this time, when Ruskin was sort of courting her as a, as a mentor and her as the protege, she was also getting involved in a revival that was sweeping through London. And she was torn, and she was meeting Jesus in a really profound way. The triune God was, was opening up to her and being poured into her life, and that love was flowing out of her. And she started working with some of the most despised people at the time, the prostitutes that lived around Victoria Station in London. And she began to minister to them. She began to know their names. She built a home for them. She taught them marketable skills. She began to love them as Christ would love them. And Ruskin wrote to her at one time. He was getting really worried. And he wrote to her, and she said, he said, it's all very fine helping the station girls, but what would you think of yourself someday for your neglect of me and your art? It's a little pompous, but still, this is an important guy. But Lilius had already made up her decision. She'd already made up her mind. And she decided that she was going to pattern her life and her mission after the very life of the triune God. And at one point she said, she said, every Christian should think of themselves like a dandelion that's in, in bloom. And we hold up our little life and allow the Holy Spirit, just Holy Spirit, just take me and blow me to where you want me to go. My life is not my own anymore. It belongs to you. So I want to serve you, Jesus, wherever you place me, wherever you plant me. She decided that she wanted to go to a place where the name of Jesus was not known and not heard, and that's why she was on the train heading south and boarded the ship with two other single women and steamed into the port of Algiers. When she came into Algiers, she said, we, the three of us stood there not knowing a soul in the place, not knowing one sentence of Arabic, or a clue for how to begin our work. We only knew that we had to come. Truly, if God needed weakness, he had it. She started ministering to the women and children in the slums. Some of them had very brutal lives. Actually, many of them. Many of them were married off as young as 10 or 12 years old, forced into marriages. Um, and then they were basically part of a harem. And then once they were older and had, had children, they were disposed of by their husbands and became truly poverty-stricken and powerless. Lilia started working with those women. She started loving on them. She started working with the children. She started teaching them, again, marketable skills. She started to share the story of Jesus with them through the little bit of Arabic she knew and through her art as well. She traveled deeper into the desert to more places where the gospel had never been. At one point, she said, it is so beautiful to be allowed to tell the gospel story for the first time. Oh, it is wonderful to break the silence in which the triune God has been loving these people all the time. It's like, I love that. that she was like 100 years ahead of her terms in, time in terms of missiology. 
because she rejected the, any kind of colonialist approach to missiology. And it was all about her incarnational presence, sharing being with people and sharing the love of Jesus as an overflow of love for them. And she knew that God was already loving them and she was just coming along to bring the, the good news to them. She spent 40 years in Algeria, often coming home. She had chronic health problems for which the Lord, with all of her faith, never healed her. Think about that. She worked and ministered out of great weakness and a lot of agony. It was not an easy life. She died at the age of 75 in 1988, and the last few years of her life, because she was, had such profound health issues, she was on her back in her bed, and she had the map of the country of Algeria on the ceiling so she could pray for the people that she had come to love so well. And when she died, and when she was dying, one of the people around her said, she saw the look on Lilius's face and said, Lilius, do you see beautiful things? And Lilius said, oh, I see many, many beautiful things. Here's this woman surrounded by the beauty of the triune God who let that beauty pour through her. She was captivated by it. Now, what about our lives? I'm almost, I'm, I'm hesitant to use Lilius because her life really is, the, the arc to her life is so astounding and so awesome and so moving and so Christ-like. It's, it's easy to say, I can't live up to that. That's not where I am. I got a normal job. I got a normal life. I got stressed with my kids or I got stressed with my neighbors or I have anxiety myself or... I'm just afraid to go on mission. I just, I just can't do that. I cannot live up to that standard. I'm not one of those kind of Christians. Well, here's the message on Trinity Sunday. What Jesus says, I want you to be in the very life of the triune God. I invite you in. He wants to meet you in your ordinariness and your weakness and even your little faith, your mustard seed of faith. He says, Father Brett and I, Father Brett preached on this a couple times. Last week, I've preached on this. He wants to meet you in your weakness and your ordinariness. So ask the triune God, where and to whom are you sending me in mission? And I think for every believer, I really do, I think every believer needs to be a world Christian in some respect, that we have the world on our scope, that we have refugees on our scope, that we have the poorest of the poor on our scope, that we have people that live in places of violence and poverty on our scope, somewhere for every single one of us. But we also need to start in the very ordinary places of what might be right in front of you, a difficult family member, a child with special needs, a parent that has special health conditions, somebody that's hurt you that you need to forgive, people whose politics drive you crazy, your job right in front of you, which you may love some days or you may hate, but you want to do it as unto the Lord. So ask the triune God, where and to whom are you asking me to give my little dandelion of a life? Where are you asking me to blow it, Lord? Where are you asking me to go? It's not mine anymore. You've bought me with a price, and I belong to you. And we never do this alone. That's the message we see in John 17, is that, again, we're invited in 
to the very life of the Trinity. We never do this on the strength of our own love or our own faith, or we would be complete failures. Week after week in worship, we are invited in to the Trinitarian life. Listen to our worship. Listen to the prayers. Listen to how, the, look at the Trinitarian shape of it. It's beautifully Trinitarian. We're invited in. The living God sees us week after week, and he goes, you look really bedraggled. You need some help today. You look hungry, spiritually hungry. I'm going to give you something to eat. You're thirsty. Get something to drink. You're sinful. You sinned. You failed this week. There's forgiveness here. Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. The living God is always inviting us in. And our response is, yes, I'm coming to receive. And then we hear at the very end of our service, now go forth into the world in peace, rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Come, receive and then go and give your life and mission. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.